0: Hello and welcome once again to the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast, the best goddamn podcast in all of Oklahoma County. Today on the show we're going to be covering Eric Rytan's book, Is God a Delusion, A Reply to Religion's Cultured Despisers. It's a fascinating read, it's just CJ and I today, so strap in. So my question, my first question to you is, is is there a better philosopher of religion in Oklahoma? No. Not that I'm aware of. Okay, not that I'm aware of either. Would you say that that Eric Raitan ranks in the top tier of authors who are addressing the New Atheists from a philosophical perspective? Yes. Okay.
1: Uh, uh, Especially ones who are defending theism.
0: Right. Right. I should have mentioned
1: that. Not all of the philosophers who deal with the New Atheists are defending theism. Some of them criticize them while agreeing with Atheism. But of the ones who defend theism, right hand's probably in the top two or three.
0: Right, which is exactly the point I was hoping to make. It's not just that we know him and he lives within like 45 minutes of where we live, but I honestly believe that of, of theistic philosophers, he's, he's very much in the top tier when it comes to addressing the arguments of the new atheists.
1: Maybe. Uh, here's the thing I don't think that the arguments of the new atheists are mostly speaking, very very good and in need of serious addressing by philosophers. Like, beyond the fact that there's, like, you need to... It's kind of like... This is a really unfair comparison, but it's kind of like Ayn Rand. They, can, they just can... Most, most philosophers just kind of ignore them because they don't seriously engage with, with most of contemporary philosophy of religion.
0: I, I think that's fine as long as the philosophers are talking to each other. But it, so long as philosophers have a mission to reach out to undergraduates and share philosophical ideas and critiques with them, yeah, you have to, you have to get into what it is that the zeitgeist of, of the era what, – what are these undergraduates reading in their spare time right, uh, when they're not reading their assigned philosophy readings? Right. That's true. Okay.
1: So what, how, what direction do you want to go with this?
0: Well, tell me about the book. Eric wrote a book. It's available from Wiley Blackwell. It's $90. Yeah,
1: I think it's not in print right now, which is why it's $90.
0: Only $26 on Kindle.
1: Yeah. Okay. Eric Raitan, he's philosopher at OSU. He was writing, he is a liberal Christian theologian. Or, well, I wouldn't say theologian, philosopher of religion. I don't think theologian's fair. Um, he's a liberal Christian philosopher of religion who was writing a book was in the process of writing a book attacking fundamentalist religion when all of the New Atheist books came out, and he didn't like the New Atheist books either because he considers them another form of fundamentalism. And so he wrote – instead, he changed the focus of his book to be attacking both sides at
0: once. Okay, so Raitan sees himself as kind of threading the needle between the two fundamentalisms, the religious fundamentalism and the atheist fundamentalism.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what he – I mean he has a blog titled The Piety That Lies Between. There you go. Which is worth reading, by the way.
0: Agreed. I think I think it's weird that that you and I are, are saying, hey, go read this theist philosopher, but – Actually, I think
1: Raitan thinks it's weird too because I know he's had blog posts in the past, which, is, which are – are along the lines of, wow, I have a lot of atheists that read me. Why do you people read me? And then long <laughs> comment sections about why we find him interesting. In part because I think he, because he's not wedded to biblical literalism and evangelical Christianity, he's able to articulate arguments that people like William Lane Craig just can't get to.
0: Oh yeah, it's. Uh- vastly more interesting.
1: He's not wedded to the kind of arguments that they are.
0: For example, he doesn't have to make the uh, the case that eternal torture by fire is a an expression of love. <laughs> he yeah. doesn't have to make he, a I think ridiculous his recent argument. The
1: book is actually arguing the opposite, that you that a good God, belief in a good God, means you can't believe in hell.
0: Right. He's so out of place in this state. Yeah. He's, he's got this view of theism, which is, is bold and interesting, and frankly... If, if Christians generally were like him, I'm not sure if I would bother with atheist activism that much.
1: Uh, no, I wouldn't either. I mean <laughs> if, if – if, if, well, we would all – I mean we he he and uh, – you, me, and him probably agree on 99 uh, percent of how we would like the social end of things to get.
0: Yeah, he, he believes in civil rights for gays and all that stuff. So right. he's, he's actually one of those people that when he says he believes in a god of love – He's not making bizarre caveats and exceptions.
1: No. no. Yeah, He specifically believes that a god of love uh, can't possibly be sending people to hell for who they decide to
0: fall in love with. Right. All right, so let's go through uh, the book. Um, the book's called Is God a Delusion? It's uh, available from Wiley Blackwell, and I, w- I would advise getting the Kindle version if you're going to get it.
1: It has a subtitle that's something like um, Responding to... Uh, religions, Culture, Despisers.
0: Right. Oh, yeah.
1: Which is a direct reference to the. Schleiermacher. The, to Schleiermacher, which is a philosopher and theologian that Raitan is heavily influenced by, mm-hmm. who was kind of the 19th century founder of, or 18th century, I don't know what century, 18th or 19th century founder of liberal Christianity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, 19th century, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and, and that title that uh, Responding to Religions, Culture, Despisers is a direct lifting from Schleiermacher's book that's similarly titled.
0: I think it's fair to say that in the late 19th century, uh, Christianity sort of split – Like you know, mainstream Christianity tended to split between the liberalizing wing, which was headed the way of Schleiermacher, saying like, let's take all these good morals and ethics and this god of love stuff really seriously – and throw out the other stuff, like kill your right. son as a test sort of stuff. And then there was the o- orthodizing or whatever whatever you want to call it, the primatizing wing that, that invented the fu- fundamentalism in um, in the early 20th century and, and a little bit before that if you want to trace it back. Right. Okay, so we're going to go back to having firm creeds and very black and white beliefs.
1: Well, okay, and Schleiermacher and right-hand following Schleiermacher both specifically argue that – Religion that is that uh, religion as we understand it in America generally, which is like you know, evangelical Christianity, Catholicism, these things that believe in a literal interpretation of the scriptures, that adhere to dogma and things like that, and that and that are about certainty, about your faith and things like that. That that's actually not religion at all. That's superstition, and that any religion that claims certainty about the transcendent is is not religion.
0: Okay, so. Let's get some stuff on the table here. We're, we're talking about chapter one about how he defines what true religion is. Now, I, I would say that as atheists, it's we should allow theists to define whatever they believe theism means, because you know sure. we're, we're skeptics, we're unbelievers, we're, we're metaphysical materialists, and so whatever each individual theist wants to say they believe theism entails, that's to me that's up to them. Right. And my only problem is if they if they try to say all the other theists are doing it wrong or you shouldn't bother arguing against them.
1: And Ryan is taking a page from the Plantinga book, and he's not trying to argue, for example, that Christianity – that his approach to Christianity is true. He is trying to argue that it's reasonable. Right on. Which has a less firm – you know, he's trying to argue that somebody who believes what he believes is not an unreasonable person. And he – says upfront in his book that atheism is also perfectly reasonable that it's a reasonable interpretation of what we know
0: but but he would like to nudge us towards uh, a more numinous understanding of the universe right towards taking the transcendent more seriously
1: yeah he wants us to take the idea of a of a theistic God that is transcendent more seriously yes okay, so chapter one he introduces Sleiemacher. Uh, and his idea of piety is the kind of this inclusive mystical intuition that we that – that is universal in humanity, not meaning that everyone has it. I he never argues that everybody has this intuition because I know people who don't, and I think he does too, but that it's universal in the sense that it has always existed in humanity, and, and it exists in every culture.
0: The numinous impulse.
1: Yeah, yeah this intuition of – Mystical experiences, connecting with the, the transcendent and the infinite, and that this is a a good, like, the, and that this is a
0: positive, good experience. Have Have you ever personally had an experience that you would characterize as numinous? Yes. Yes. Me too. So. To where To where you just like stand in awe of the universe and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, I'm comfortable with a with the claim that people genuinely have these like mystical experiences. I just don't. Uh, I'm I'm also comfortable. With the with the position that it's likely that they're nothing
0: more than in our heads. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of where I am on it. Right. Of course, one of mine happened on the on the interstate, so it didn't it didn't feel particularly w- worshipful. Right.
1: And and sets out in chapter one that the attacks by the new atheists on religion are not actually attacking religion. They're attacking the corruption of religion and superstition. So he draws a distinction between religion and superstition.
0: The, the the thing is, I, I, I get where he's coming from there, but I, I think he needs to allow that attacks on superstition are, are, are valid. <laughs> he does. <laughs> that it's a, that it's a useful exercise.
1: That. No, he does allow that. Okay. He actually and, – and the points where he – like he, he will quote a passage from the New Atheist and say, yes, that's completely right. Everything they're saying is right. It just doesn't apply to me and people like me. That – and, and his critique there therein is that, that while they're talking about they're talking about re- the, like this broader thing that we culturally call religion, but it's not like they're 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 claiming that it's universal and it's not, and that there's forms of religion that are actually religion and not superstition, and that these the, and that this religion is the, that their criticisms don't apply, their cultural criticisms don't apply
0: two things about that firstly he's staking out this position that's sort of a middle ground between what what i might characterize like the hardcore new atheists on the one hand and yeah. the resurgent fundamentalist christians on the other i both both of the camps in our which are poles in our culture are are going to look at right hand and think you are so off base right
1: yeah, no, he's attacked from both sides. Yeah. Like if you go read his Amazon review, it's funny because he has like liberal Christians or liberal religious people going, yeah, this is great. This is completely like within what we consider comfortable with saying. And then you get like – like you get atheists going on there going, wow, you know, this is anathema. And then you get like hardcore evangelicals coming on there going like, he denies the divinity of Christ and blah, blah, blah. You know just attacking mm-hmm. him from both sides, which is the position that he has staked out intentionally
0: which is to me is inherently interesting because I can't think of a whole lot of i can't think of a whole lot of books that are occupying that conceptual space right and not for lack of reading
1: right it's an interesting position because because he stakes out this position it it's i consider it a more intellectually interesting position, even though I'm not like likely to buy into it, I, I consider it much more interesting than the silliness that is like literal Bible belief or defending a God that sends people to hell. Right. Like they shed all that stuff. And like I, I've, I've been on record before saying I don't have a big problem with theism, but Raitan's not deistic. He's theistic. He believes in a God that wants to interact with us and possibly does do things like miracles and things like that. Like we'll get into that later, but he doesn't like he, he believes that, you know, there's this guy that, that, that interacts with us and wants to connect with us and that there's some kind of, you know, he, he's, he, there's some kind of afterlife ish thing. Like he never goes into detail on his concept of the afterlife. You know, he's trying, he's trying to take all the, the appealing aspects of Christianity and, Finding a defense for them with, while shedding all the stuff that is just obviously
0: crap. Yeah, it, which is I would say more in the tradition of Jefferson than Schleiermacher, but well, I mean, I guess Schleiermacher did the same thing, really.
1: Yeah, well, and I don't, I think because I think Schleiermacher probably did it more rigorously as far as intellectually. Jefferson just said, Jefferson didn't, didn't couch it within philosophical. Arguments,
0: but he's still ultimately saying these are the parts that are obviously moral, and these are the parts that are obviously immoral, and he was relying on his own moral intuitions to sort out the diamonds from the dung. Yeah,
1: well, and and we've we've gotten up through basically halfway through chapter two just in our conversation so far. Yeah. Now, um, Raitan's good at pointing out that it says he says, look, we have this c- cultural conception of religion, and and and, and he. He's re- redefining it, and he's saying that largely the reason that we have this constant, you know, reason our culture sees what he calls superstition as religion is largely to b- the people to blame for this are the people like William Lane Craig, who do defend, try, who do go out there and try to publicly defend what he considers just anathema, of terrible ideas.
0: Mm-hmm. I would say that's that's, a, that's spot on.
1: Yeah. I mean, he argues, like, the, the god that, that, that these people worship couldn't in any reasonable way be called a good god. That makes sense. Um, okay, so chapter 3, he goes on to um, make an argument for why it's not a good idea to define god by the omnis, the omnibenevolent, omni, omniscient, omnipresent, or no, omnipresent, omniscient, and uh, omnipotent.
0: Mm-hmm. Why is it a bad idea?
1: Well, because... By emphasizing those things, you rob the concept of goodness from God. Because I mean, what does it mean to say that, that, that an omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipotent, an omnipresent God? That, that, what's this to say that that? I mean, how how does it make sense to ascribe goodness to that?
0: I don't know. Why why does it not make sense? Well, I mean, because the world is such a terrible place, or for
1: some other reason. He never comes down on the side of saying whether God has any of these omnis or not. He's just saying, like, look, the 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 whole point of God is that it's this good, you know. The God is, is is loving and good, and he's this transcendent thing with which we're trying to connect. Like, he wants to define God within the context of what he calls the ethical religious hope, right. which is this hope that there's something other than this life, that there's something transcendent that we can connect with. And he defines God as whatever it is that fulfills that hope. And so by defining God that way, like, it's the thing that fulfills our hope for goodness and and a connection with the transcendent. By focusing on these omnis, you're missing the whole point.
0: Yeah, the point, I I, I think you have to allow that the point is different for different people. (laughs) Like, people have different hopes, and some people really just... They hope for heaven for themselves, or they hope for hell for their enemies. Yeah. Not every not everybody has the same broadly universalist ethical religious hope that hand has. Some people are far more narrow minded than him.
1: Yeah, and and I think he would probably grant that. I think what he's going to argue is is that something that's universal in every culture is that there's these mystical experiences with, with the transcendent that are accompanied with the hope for connection with the divine and and he's going to argue that anything that's built around trying to connect with that divine in a way that's that's about humble not not being certain you know not not focused on this desire for certainty that's corrupting this desire for connection with the divine and always being humble about it like that, there's no way that you can get out of that some kind of religion that's terrible like he's going to argue that, that like that is true religion, that you can't get a
0: bad religion out of it. Sorry, that was an unintentional bad religion reference there. Yes, yes. Um, on, on, on what grounds is he arguing this? Just the idea, the idea that religion is inherently hopeful? I mean, wh- how do you justify taking the view that the universe at its bottom gives us hope instead of despair? Well, he doesn't he i mean he makes some
1: some arguments that kind of gesture at that but i didn't think he made anything that was very concrete other than like you can get into the the idea that well this hope is just something that we have okay
0: and then i'm, I'm assuming that the people that invented hell don't have the same hope okay you know
1: but but, but you know, there's this hope this this hope for connecting with the divine that we all have and then he gestures at Reasonableness about believing that this hope is is valid by pointing at things like the cosmological argument, and things like that. Like he says, like you can't establish with certainty that a god exists, but you can. Like he argues that it's reasonable to believe a god exists, and we have this hope, so it's reasonable to live our lives as if this hope were true. It, his whole book, in the all, boils down to an in the last chapter a way of trying to salvage Pascal's wager.
0: Wow. You make it sound worse than it is. Well, I mean, Pascal's Wager
1: is demonized in in our community, part because I don't think very many of us have read Pascal's Pensies and don't understand that Pascal's Wager is set up with this whole long argument on why we have to be agnostic, um, truly agnostic in the classic sense, mm-hmm. and and I don't agree with that setup argument, so I don't agree with the, the wager. But Raitan is trying to find – like through his whole book, he's trying to say, look, it's reasonable to be an atheist, and it's also reasonable to believe that a god exists. And since it's more beneficial for us to believe a god exists, and we have these mystical experiences that point at the idea of the existence of a god, that it's by trying to like achieve this transcendence we find meaning and purpose and make the world a better place, then that's something we should pursue.
0: Does he consider the possibility that we could – Pursue that meaning and purpose on our own.
1: He is very skeptical of that, and I actually sat down and had a conversation with him not too long ago, right after I finished reading the book. Mm-hmm. And I went over that with him, and he pointed me toward an author. Um, yeah, I don't have the uh, I don't have the guy in front of me. Okay, but Ritan Ry- recommended uh, an atheist phlo- a philosopher on the subject of finding ethics and meaning in a world without a God. The name slips in my mind at the moment, but I looked the guys. I was going to suggest the guy for a book club, but like Raitan, his books are way overpriced right now on Amazon, and they're not available on Kindle.
0: Well, we can put it in the show notes later when you figure out who that is. Okay, I will.
1: Um, anyway, so Raitan is – apparently he read this book after he wrote Is God a Delusion, mm-hmm. where he was highly critical of this idea of finding meaning without theism. And he's been critical of it since. I, I read on his blog where he was critical. He had a whole blog post where he was critical of the idea. And I kind of challenged him on that. And he's like, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you can have meaning and, and value in a in a godless world. But if that's the case, then I kind of takes the whole ground out from underneath the whole point of needing all of this that he's talking about. So that that's a weakness, I think, for him.
0: Well, we—I mean, I, I guess—in the name of open-mindedness, we could allow the possibility that some people need the concept of the numinous much more than others. Sure. And, and we've co-evolved. Uh, we, as a species, have co-evolved with numinous and religious concepts and rituals for so long that I see no reason to assume a priori that humankind will function well without them. Right. And I'm, I'm just—you know—trying to keep my mind open to every possibility here.
1: Um. Okay, well let's get back to the book. Okay, uh, chapters four, five, and six are all basically kind of dealing with arguments for the existence of God. Start he's, he he structures around what he considers the most reasonable of the arguments for the existence of God, which is the clo- the cosmological argument. He doesn't specifically go the Kalam route. He he instead he like goes back to Leibniz and looks at the strengths and weaknesses of Leibniz's argument, and then he proceeds to completely rip apart Dawkins' as he described it in his book um Dawkins misunderstands leibniz and then proceeds to criticize leibniz
0: on on the very points where he misunderstands him yeah right i don't think that was an, an inaccurate really no as much as i like Dawkins I, I don't, yeah i don't think eric missed that one
1: no he has an anecdote i think
0: they tell you that you tell you that story about how someone came to him and said what would happen if a student turned this in
1: yeah 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 Exactly.
0: And, and he's like, well, I would give him a bad grade. <laughs> yeah, a very bad grade. We should mention at this point that, that it's not uncommon for geniuses within their field to kind of suck when they try to step outside of it. And he makes that argument
1: very well, which I'm, I'm going to get back to in a minute. He makes the argument that Dawkins is great on biology. Like he's awesome when he's ripping on creationists. What he... Falls apart is when he's trying to make philosophical arguments. Because Stocken's not, a well, not a trained philosopher, and that philosophy, regardless of what so many people who, who are atheists and humanists out there might think, it's it's a field where the more you learn about it, the more you, the better you get at it, yep. just like science. And yes, you can have people who go horribly wrong, and it makes progress over time. So. Dawkins didn't didn't understand Leibniz the points at which he misunderstood him he made bad arguments um, I'm gonna actually refer to um, there's a really good podcast out there called the partially Examined life and they have an entire episode on Schleiermacher and they have an entire episode on Leibniz on it was actually on Leibniz's um, monadology I don't think they had an entire episode on his cosmological argument but Leibniz's Uh, they did a good job of of discussing Leibniz and also they had a whole argument or they had a whole episode on the new atheists um so I would consider particularly their episode on Slyermacher because it's very relevant to what we're talking about definitely listen to that episode because it it's called The Partially Examined Life and um what the, These guys are all former, like, grad school philosophy majors, like, all were going to get their PhD in philosophy, all, you know, well on their way to doing that. And they all dropped out and decided to go be in the real world. And then a decade later, they all get back together and decide to start a podcast. And – well, over a decade later. I think they were in grad school in the 90s. And they all get together and decide to start a podcast where they just read – stuff read philosophical texts or in this case the new atheists and sit around and bs about it for an hour or two and they're great it's a great podcast but their schleiermacher episode is really relevant to this and they do a good job of the guy they bring in a, an episode the guy that they brought on is to talk talk with him about it is kind of like us interested in philosophy but he is a liberal religious believer who like right hand has a lot of respect for schleiermacher and they get on there and they talk about you know the strengths and weaknesses and benefits of Slimewalker.
0: I think you've you've managed to talk up an obscure podcast on an even more obscure podcast.
1: Yeah, that's
0: fine.
1: <laughs> I'm fine with that. Uh, if anybody who listens, anybody who's listening to this should be listening to the Partially Examined Life anyway. So.
0: Yes, I agree. But I, I generally agree that people should listen to enlightening things. So. Yeah. I'm not even and, counting us among that. Yeah.
1: Okay. So he has three chapters, basically dedicated to the first, like two chapters dedicated to the cosmological argument, why he thinks it's rational, rational to conclude from the cosmological argument that a God might exist, and that, and then he has a whole section on, well, like what well, are objections to this? You know, like what about the whole idea of, you know, he deals with the whole idea of brute facts and. The idea that maybe the universe just exists and and he's
0: like, Oh, that's possible, but you know This is where I felt like he became significantly less persuasive. I agree. I roughly. Agree. Yeah. <laughs> like when when he turns from from critiquing other people's arguments to making his own, it's like, well, I, I, you're not quite as persuasive as you were before. Right, I agree.
1: And and why I think he really goes off Raitan really goes off the rails at one point during the section where he has he has what isn't really a speculative area where he's like, well, these are, these are things that might be true. And he's like, well, what if God uses quantum physics to perform miracles by middling with the outcomes of quantum indeterminacy? And he goes all into that. And then he quotes Kenneth Miller, who's a great biologist, but kind of <laughs> like Dawkins, when he talks about areas where he doesn't specialize, he goes off the rails. He quotes Kenneth Miller he has this like ex- like long like multi paragraph quote of Kenneth Miller, talking about how quantum indeterminacy is like established in science and like the universe is not deterministic and and all this and that. Like, okay, there are interpretations of quantum physics that are that say that the universe is not deterministic, but there's and, and there are also t- interpretations of quantum physics that the universe is deterministic. And the cool thing about that is is that's why they're called interpretations, because we have no way of distinguishing between them. They're all consistent with the facts.
0: Right. We, we didn't, If we had had a, a, a scientific, like, Michelson-Morley-style test where we could determine how how deterministic the universe was, we would know. Which which is what's frustrating, because Rytan, who's an otherwise good philosopher, runs afoul of the very
1: thing he accuses Dawkins of, which is when he strays into science – he quotes people who don't know what they're talking about. He talks about stuff that's complete, that's implausible at face value if you have any kind of grounding in the field. And he does what Dawkins does with philosophy when he's talking about science, and it's very frustrating.
0: It, it, it is particularly frustrating coming as it does just a few chapters after a, a proper critique of you know why you should not do that.
1: Right. I'll, I'll give him – I want to be charitable to him and say – Look, it's fair that you're just speculating. But you just a couple of chapters before attacked Dawkins for not knowing what he's talking about, and then you get out here and quote authoritatively somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about. When you should at face view, when you sit around and think about it for a little bit, especially when he like attacks people for scientism, and then he performs scientism. like he quotes somebody who's being scientist. And let's let's unpack that term a little bit. Scientism is the idea that science is the only thing that can answer philosophical questions, or science can get at philosoph- certain kinds of philosophical questions. And science can inform philosophical questions, but there's questions that science just can't answer. Mm-hmm. Like, is the universe determinate or indeterminate? Like, right. that's something, that, in principle, science probably can't ever answer.
0: I am not. I don't know if I'm willing to give you that in principle, but certainly, in, in practice, I'll, I think you're absolutely right. I'll, I'll allow for the possibility of a future breakthrough experiment on that point, but.
1: Well, but even then, the, all that does is push the question back. Like you could say, okay, well, this stuff is clearly deterministic, but the things that are causing these outcomes, are they deterministic or indeterministic? You know, it's, it's kind of like an infinite regress. And science can't solve infinite regresses. I think there's very good reasons for believing in principle that, science, that determinism is not a question science can get at.
0: It sounds to me like you've been reading too much uh, Pigliucci lately.
1: Well, I have. I think Piglucci is right about this, and, and, I, and I think right-hand, by quoting Kenneth Miller as an authority on that issue, is actually quoting somebody who's doing the very thing that right-hand gets so irked by, mm-hmm. which is putting science in a place. You, you're trying to, trying to place science in this position to answer a kind of question that science isn't about answering. Science isn't about answering empirical questions, and whether or not the universe is determinist or indeterminist is not an empirical question. Not yet, and I'm not sure how well it could possibly be one unless you get outside the universe and look in.
0: Well, nobody was sure how we could test the ether theory until Michelson and Morley came up with a good test, and now it seems obvious in hindsight. But at the time, it was a total breakthrough. The what theory? The ether, the, the theory that light lights a wave because it actually has a substrate. Uh, the, the the point is that that some of these things, like even like. Spontaneous generation. It, it just seems untestable until suddenly someone tests it, and it's like, wow, why didn't anyone think of that?
1: But, but I, I think in principle we can say philosoph- – just for philosophical speculation, you can say in principle that unless you can get outside of the universe and look in, you can't say whether or not the things that are, that, that that pop into our universe are or ind- or determined or indeterminate.
0: I'm, I'm a, I am want to make an argument, but I think we should move forward with right-hand stuff. <laughs>
1: okay, okay. But, but the fact that we, the and I are even kind of on that shows that that, that was not an argument. That's not a rabbit hole right-hand should have gone down. It completely undermined his entire thesis of that, like, Dawkins is too focused on science and he doesn't understand religion, blah, blah, blah. And then he quotes Kenneth Miller, a biologist, on physics.
0: That That is sort of uh, out of left field there.
1: Yeah, it frustrated me. But – Okay, the, the, uh, Well, I'm gonna leave a, alone whether or not I find his his argument for the cosmological argument good or not. Like, it's fine to the extent like he does the best he can. But I think a bad situation. Like, I don't find the cosmological argument compelling.
0: I'll give him this. He took a uh, he took an interesting uh, route to it because you know instead of instead of trying to reformulate it in very modern terms, he he seemed to try to go back uh, to Leibniz and get right. the
1: spirit of it and he tried to integrate the spirit of it with his religious kind of convictions mm-hmm. and he's like, he's like well it's consistent with these, uh, this religious hope and these mystical experiences and since it's consistent with these mystical experiences they kind of work together to, to form like positive evidence in favor of the existence of God except that I think that there's plausible explanations for these mystical experiences outside of a religious context or outside of a a transcendent context.
0: Wait, just then when you say, I think you're not talking about CJ thinks, are you?
1: Yes. I think CJ. thinks.
0: Okay. You're not, you're not paraphrasing him. You're, you're making a, a critique,
1: right? Yeah. I'm critiquing saying like, I think that I don't think that mystical experiences point at evidence for the existence of the transcendent. And I don't think that. And so it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work with the cosmological argument as like, Co coexist like I, I understand that the cause like that one interpretation of the cosmological argument is consistent with one interpretation of the mystical, but I don't find that that interpretation of the mystical compelling, and so I see no reason why the two work to like work as positive evidence together, and 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 uh, we should probably say like, Rakyan is right about the cosmological what the cosmological argument what the possibilities are for the cosmological argument like the cosmological argument is one of the more compelling arguments of philosophy of religion because it clarifies what our options are
0: I agree the, I don't th- I, I think if there's anything to be learned from studying the cosmological argument it's that you're going to come down to a few counterintuitive possibilities and you're not going to like any of them right Yes. Your, your natural human walking, intuitions are going to balk at, at anything that's left.
1: Which is why somebody like William Lane Craig, who's entirely about intuition pumps, mm-hmm. is, is so – like hits that one home so hard because he thinks that he has the most intuitive interpretation of the possibilities. So we should probably lay out what the possibilities are. Yes. There are three possibilities for – well, okay. There's the possibility. Okay, the, the cosmological argument is that uh, something had to have caused all this to exist, this cosmos. Um, you know, there's. Yeah, you don't have an infinite regress, or, or, or I mean, the three options are an infinite. Re- why everything's here? There's an infinite regress. There's a God, or there's it just is.
0: Well, yeah. There's there's two options. There's an infinite regress of causes. Right. Or there's a, a some first cause or brute fact behind, you know, that you come back to, and that's the, the a brute fact. Yeah. There's the, there's the first cause. And since since most people can't deal with the possibility of an infinite regress conceptually, and Craig thinks he can defeat that intellectually, which I th- I think his arguments are ultimately vacuous. But um, since most people reject the possibility of an infinite regress, it's down to what kind of brute fact are you willing to deal with? Right.
1: And so the two options for brute facts are God, which co- which is a cause for the, for everything else, or just things just exist.
0: And, and and it's important for we need to distinguish those are both, those are both forms of things just exist. Right. But one of them is things just exist, and agency and mind is fundamental. It's first. Right. And the other one is things just exist and agency and mind is not fundamental it arises much later in the process right and
1: so then you get your theologians like Leibniz and everyone after him because Leibniz really made the co- I mean the cosmological argument existed before Leibniz but Leibniz is the one that really like brought it to the Christian world and like made it he gave the the, the, more, the, the most the first really robust version of it within Christianity so you know they, they make these arguments for why it needs to be a mind. It needs to be a, you know, this, this transcendent loving mind. And Raitan kind of points at some of that stuff, but I don't find any of it compelling.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and, and to some extent, Raitan, he's trying to show that there's this consistency with the with this God interpretation of the cosmological argument and the mystical experiences. And since they're consistent, they work together to, to create a, it's almost like a theory. About the world or about the universe, and in, in your theory about the universe because you have the because it's inter, there's these internal consistencies of these mystical experiences, because you have this internal consistencies and these things he thinks work together, then it creates like a theory that points toward his concept of God. Okay, well because I don't find the mysticism element of it compelling, I think there's good reasons for thinking that mystical experiences are don't point at transcendence, then I don't find the cosmological element of it compelling. You know, they don't work together for me. Mm -hmm. Um, That's, that's my own personal interpretation of it. He goes on to talk about, he goes on in chapter seven to really focus on the mystical experiences. And his whole chapter is why these mystical experiences are compelling or why we should find them compelling. Um, And he, he has a whole section where he goes after Sam Harris because Mm -hmm. Harris has a section in, I think the end of faith one, of his books, where he talks about Buddhism and non theistic religion and mystical experiences and how um, Buddhism gets at this stuff accurately. And Raitan in- goes after Harris and says, Well, of course you think Buddhism's the right way. You went to a Buddhist temple and you had mystical experiences in a Buddhist setting where they told you if you do these things, you'll have these kinds of mystical experiences. Well, duh, you think Buddhism's the right way. <laughs> and
0: i don't remember him saying duh
1: but i mean that's his basic argument like <laughs> is that like harris is kind of begging the question which is fine like i think he's basically right but then he goes on to posit and i don't know if this is like common like in sociology that like this is an old categorization or not but he puts forward these categorizations of mystical experiences of like a hierarchy of mystical experiences where you have like the Buddhist mystical experiences at the lowest level, and then you have these other mystical experiences at the next level, and then you have the mystical experiences that he's talking about at the highest level. And it all sounds very special, pleady, and just so oh, storyish yeah. to me.
0: Yeah, I remember that. It's, it, it's basically saying, here's, the, here's a variety of mystical experiences. Now I'm going to sort them from top to bottom by order of how well they cohere with the, <laughs> the idea of, of what the saints were doing in the desert when they were communing with God.
1: Yeah, and he gives no better argument for why his mystical, like his categorization of mystical experience is more valid than Harris's or anyone else's. He just lays it out there and says, yeah, this is the one I'm going with, and he gives no real good argument for why it's better.
0: What, what bugs me about, about this is that – I mean this is where Sam Harris actually could be a lot more detailed in his writings and talk about what neurology has to tell us about this.
1: You've got to write a book longer than 100 pages to be detailed.
0: Oh, now we're taking cheap shots at Sam Harris. Sorry, but uh, – okay. especially
1: when he just had a blog post up today whining about how everybody's being mean to him.
0: Not everybody, just PZ.
1: Yeah, which, which – okay. After reading that, I'm like, God, I'm fixing to record a podcast where I rip on Sam Harris. But to be fair, <laughs> Sam Harris needs to write a book longer than 100 pages if he wants to be taken seriously.
0: And if he wants to talk about mystical experiences in the Buddhist context, he needs to tell us what neurology and, and neural imaging has to say about that in right. some detail.
1: Right, I agree. And and which is why like right hand for me as a philosopher even of religion right hand for me has no credibility on the like categorization of mystical experiences, on why we should take this category as higher level than this category, like none of that's compelling to me. Like for me that's the job of philosophers who are working with neuroscientists. That's not the job of philosophers who are working with sociologists.
0: Right. Yeah. We need to, these insights are either they're something that's generated naturally by our, our our wetware, by the way that our brains are configured, or they are genuine numinous insights into the world beyond. Right. And, and the thing is, we can kind of test the first hypothesis. Yeah. I don't know how you test whether they're insights into the world beyond, but you can kind of test whether certain kinds of stimulation will give people certain kinds of experiences which they interpret subjectively as numinous. Right. That there has been some work in that and there could be a lot more and it's wrong for philosophers and especially uh the new atheists to to discount that work. We need to, we need to talk about that. Right.
1: Well, and but th- that's another reason why I was frustrated with Rythen in that part of the book too though because he for example Rythen almost never goes after Dennett in the book. Partly because he I think he respects Dennett as a philosopher. Mm. Um Partly because Dennett's much more careful in what he writes, so it's a lot harder to go after him on philosophy, religion stuff. Because breaking the spell is not really about whether or not religion's true. Like Dennett just says out, sets up in the first chapter. Look, I don't believe religion's true, so we're going to assume it's not, and, and here's all of the research you could do, assuming it's not, at getting at why it exists. Like let's let's set it aside and assume it's a natural phenomenon. Now here's all the cool stuff we could do if it is.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think Do- I think Dennett's even more cautious than that. I mean, I think that Dennett's program of, of investigation works even if theism is true. Sure, you're right.
1: You're right. Dennett Dennett does have that that caveat in his book. You're right. But but because Rietta never goes after Dennett on that, like Dennett should have been the guy he was talking about in the chapter on categorizing mystical experiences, not Harris. Harris is the easy target, and and he just leaves Dennett laying to the side, and you know, so that for me is frustrating.
0: Now, here's the thing about the easy targets, like, th- this is a dilemma, and I, I, don't, want, I, I don't have a, a strong opinion on this one way or the other, but imagine you're going to write a book on in this conceptual area, somewhere in, in this area. You can either write a book which is highly academic and addresses the best possible arguments and gets very little readership as a result because people haven't heard of the authors of the best possible arguments. Right. Or you could write a book that caters to the most popular arguments, such as those put forth by Sam Harris and, and, and um, Richard Dawkins, and get a much wider readership. I don't think we'd be talking about this book. I don't know if we'd have heard about this book if he hadn't have gone after Dawkins. That's true. And, 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 and to be fair to him
1: also, it's much easier to quote a passage from The God Delusion or quote a passage from The End of Faith or – even – or especially from Hitchens and say, here's the idea that they're trying to convey now.
0: Because it's so compactly stated in those
1: works. Yeah, especially Harris. I mean if you write short books, you're easy to quote sections from. Mm -hmm. And so it's very easy for him to quote a section and say, "Okay, here's the problems with this. It's harder to do with Dennett because Dennett – you're going to get the main thesis in the opening few paragraphs of the chapter. But then he has an entire chapter defending the nuances and going after the, the arguments for and against what he's arguing. And he's much more careful than those other guys. And because of that, it's a lot harder to quote him and then say, here's what's wrong with it.
0: Because you'd have to incorporate all the nuance that Dennett does if you want to honestly address his arguments. And can we, can we agree that Wrighton is trying to honestly address arguments? I mean… That he at least brings yeah. a certain amount of academic integrity to, the, to this enterprise?
1: Yeah, no, I don't think he's being unfair. I think he just says, well, I think I think he just – I mean his basic criticism of Dennett is, well, I just don't find his approach compelling. Now I'm going to set Dennett aside and go after these guys who I can quote sections from and then deal with because Dennett's his whole, whole other thing, which is fine. I mean Dennett's not Dennett doesn't argue for why God doesn't exist, so Raitan's not even really concerned with Dennett other than – that, uh, that there's this whole chapter on why we should take mysticism seriously, and Dennett it has a whole book on why we should treat religion as a natural phenomenon. Right.
0: Yeah, I, I would like to see him interact with the more – I would like to see Raitan interact with the more philosophically sophisticated atheists, and there's plenty of them out there, and, and, and we could go through names, but people will not have heard of them.
1: I know that Raitan reads some of them. I know he reads Law's blog, and Stephen Law, mm-hmm. and I know he reads Piliucci's blog. Because he'll quote from them. On their he'll quote from their blogs on occasion.
0: Well, those and those are the ones that are that are deliberately reaching out to the mainstream audiences.
1: Yeah. Well, and especially especially Stephen Law. Stephen Law is doing some great counter apologetics work right now.
0: And I think it's fine for for people in our situation to focus on those few academics who are deliberately reaching out to a broader audience. But there's a lot more in the literature out there. People like Michael Martin, uh, Kai Nelson, doing really hardcore academic philosophy. That those are the atheists you want to argue with. Right,
1: and I think Stephen Law is the only person out there writing right now for both a popular audience and a scholarly audience who has anything interesting at all and new to say on the problem of evil. Like I find Stephen Law's arguments on the problem of evil fascinatingly fun, but he's the only guy I know of who's writing anything contemporary on that for both a broad and a scholarly audience. You should be reading Stephen
0: Law's blog. Agreed. People should be reading Stephen Law. Okay, so uh,
1: which gets to – speaking of the problem of evil, we get chapter 9 where he has a whole chapter on the problem of evil where he once again goes after Dawkins because Dawkins doesn't take the problem of evil seriously. And then right-hand says, look, you should take the problem of evil seriously. It is a legitimate problem for theism. Now here's why I think we, you know, here and here's my responses to it. I don't think any of these responses ultimately work. It's really a problem for theism, but and he tries he tries to compare it to evolution, where like evolution's not a complete theory either. Yeah, there's evolution's something we can establish, but it's got problems. And I think it's an unfair, a bad analogy, but Right Hand makes it.
0: At least he's being honest that the problem of evil is a real problem. He's not. Yeah, yeah. Trying is. to write him off with of some facile theodicy. Right.
1: Well, and and he he presents the contemporary theodicies and presents some of the objections to them, and you know, and he really kind of goes after the theodicies he doesn't find compelling, like the the, yeah that that entail things like hell, but um it's it's fine. And then in the last chapter, he tries to show that religion isn't the cause of all of the evils of the world, which is basically his his chapter on why Hitchens is silly, (laughs) which is fine. Whatever. Yeah, I, I, I think Hitchens is, should be read more for uh, literary merit than, and less for quality of argument.
0: Yeah, I, yeah I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I think that Hitchens is a wonderful writer, and he can really turn a phrase in, in a very memorable way. But ultimately, uh, Hitchens' arguments against religion are, are more about just the breadth of his experience, having seen the evils of religion firsthand in lots of different parts of the world. Yeah. Than they are about philosophical rigor.
1: Right. And right are going to make the claim that like everything that Hitchens argues against is the superstition that he was talking about at the beginning of the book. It's not actual religion like what he's wanting it to be.
0: Right. And and so I don't even think that should be framed as a disagreement necessarily. If, if right-hand and Hitchens both believe that certain uh, sets of intolerant beliefs are bad for humanity, then there's no point in framing it as a disagreement. Right. You, know, you both agree that these are bad sets of ideas that need to be discarded.
1: I, I skipped a chapter, and I think it's the chapter that I find uh, the, the one most interesting to talk about because I think it's a problem for Raitan. Um, it's chapter 8 where he talks about – he tries to show that trust in a good God is you – know, he, he, he combines all the arguments from, from before and then tries to argue that not only is trust in a good God reasonable, but it's categorically different from – other kinds of belief in things like flying spaghetti monsters fairies ufos
0: even good fairies and good ufos sure and, and
1: and he tries to argue that it's a categorically different thing because fairies are the kind of thing that like we could we, we should have reason to believe we can get at empirically but what he is arguing is not something that we should have reason to believe we could get at empirically and he has a whole section on like Why the transcendent is in principle not something you can empirically test and all that, which is fine. And I actually asked him about this when I spoke to him because I saw an obvious criticism or comparison to the kind of religion he's talking about and something to me that seems obviously pernicious, which is there is a set of religious beliefs that are similar to his – I don't think he would want to call them religious beliefs. They're beliefs about the world that say there the universe is fundamentally good, which is something he wants to say, that the universe cares about me, or like there's like there's this transcendence that cares about me, and that I can make a connection with it. And those people making those claims are people like Deepak Chopra and Rhonda Byrne. <laughs>
0: Oh that's terrible. But it's true. I know it's just it's just horrible to be compared with them.
1: And so to uh, like I asked him I'm like how is what you're arguing fundamentally different for the for the experiences of the people who are following the secret which I think everyone he and us are both going to agree is a pernicious book and what what he's espousing like what's the fundamental difference? Because he's saying that inherently, by believing that, like by, one, by 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 pursuing this good transcendence, you can't possibly have this corrupted religion. That there's something categorically different about this set of beliefs. That it's it's good in a way that that all these other approaches to religion are corruptible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How, how I, I could. Point at a real-world example that says, "Look, these people are coming from the same place you are, and they're putting forward obviously pernicious, harmful ideas from the same place you are." And so, so what you're arguing for is not immune from the very thing you're claiming it's immune to.
0: So, did, what did he say? He didn't really have a response to that. Well, I mean, when you when you've grounded yourself in the ethical religious hope, as he calls it, right? I mean how do you defend against those who? have similarly, their, their hope is slightly different, but they're still grounded in hope in a similar way. Right. That the universe somehow cares about our desires and con- right. conforms or reacts to them in some way. Well,
1: and and one of the common responses to the secret people is a, a variation of the problem of evil, which says, "Wow, soccer mom in Edmond, Oklahoma, who reads the secret, the universe truly really cares about her. <laughs> and so when things happen that are good for her, it's it's because she she responded to the universe caring. But the kid in Africa, somehow it's his fault.
0: I'm so glad my kids don't play soccer, or I'd take personal offense.
1: Yeah, well, and and that's an obvious criticism of the secret. Like that's that's just an easy argument to make. Like even Oprah had to deal with that on her show after like people started lashing back against
0: Well, the element of victim blaming is so obvious in that that line of thinking like if the universe is kicking your ass then it's kind of your fault right isn't that how he recognizes that problem
1: and that's why he takes the problem of evil so seriously Mm -hmm. is that like he doesn't want bad things to happen to people to somehow be their fault and he doesn't want it to be uh, uh, the fault of a of a pernicious universe So I don't think he has like you know, you know what I'm saying like I don't know where he gets I don't I don't know how he solves that problem.
0: I feel like we should do a whole other episode on theodicy. Just the, what are the 3 or 4 best theodicies and just talk about them. Because it's it's such a a, a fascinating and difficult. I mean to me it's it's you, you know it's like you've made up a mind game with certain rules and now you've got to play along, but we kind of did that with or we
1: we did it, we did something similar to that when we read God's problem.
0: Yeah, but that was constrained by biblical theodicy, which left off some of the good new ones like John Hick. I haven't read John Hick's Theodicies. Soulmaking is John Hick.
1: Yeah, no, and right, that's right. And right hand references soulmaking theodicy, like as a potential, like as one of the more compelling options.
0: Uh, yeah, I agree. De- definitely one of the most compelling options. And intuitive to those of us who are parents, who think that, yes, sometimes our children do need a little bit of tribulation in order to get the lesson.
1: But if I remember right, Raitan also put in the obvious response to the Soulmaking making theodicy, which is, wow, it seems like this parent sure does take it too far sometimes.
0: Yes, <laughs> very too far sometimes. There's a
1: difference between punishing your kid to, achieve, uh, to help them become better in the long run and locking your kid in the basement and never letting them out.
0: Right, and that's where the evidential part of the argument comes in. It's a matter of degree. Right. Like, yeah, we, we can justify some amount of struggle and suffering in the name of building an Olympic champion or some other similar achievement where right. you're working hard, uh, but you're getting better at, in the process as opposed to you're just suffering, 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 and getting worse and more defeated over time.
1: Uh, this is actually one of the more emotionally compelling arguments that Raitan makes is he tries to turn the problem of evil around and say, look, this universe really does – fundamentally crush some people like it really is absolutely tragic that this universe crushes these people and like that the only way the only uh me, like meaningfulness or, or goodness or anything that could possibly come from that is if there is a way that those that's redeemed and 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 and, and, and transcended and the, and that it's fundamentally not the case that that happens now for those people if a God doesn't exist,
0: huh well I guess I guess that's where I have to you know stand up for the possibility of utter bleakness in the universe <laughs> sure well
1: and and actually, I brought that to him as a grounding for what i I have a strong sense of moral duty and I have that strong sense of moral duty because I recognize that possibility that there is going to be horrible crushing soul crushing awfulness in the world and so I have the strong sense of moral duty to mitigate that because I have these moral sentiments that that's awful and wrong and everyone has those moral sentiments unless they're a psychopath
0: mm-hmm. and so and cool. yeah and who's more morally motivated when
1: we recognize that there's not a god that redeems that crush that that soul crushing and, 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 and transcends it then it becomes then we have this strong ethical duty to mitigate the frequency of that happening.
0: It, it, right. Okay. So you're saying that the more you're willing to admit that the universe is a dark and nihilistic place that doesn't care about us, the more we should care about each other. Right. Eh, I'll go with it.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, for me, that imparts a strong sense of moral duty, like a very like important sense of moral duty that, like, I have, I have because I have moral sentiments and most people do, the fact that I'm willing to face that that bleakness head-on instills upon me, like combines with my moral sentiments, to instill an urgency and a moral duty.
0: So, for example, to the extent that you think all evils will be rectified in the afterlife, you're less motivated to mitigate them in the current life.
1: Yes, and Ryotan's going to balk at that. (laughs) I bet. And I think that that becomes obviously true if you look at just how people really are. Like most people, is it, I think it's fair to say that for a certain subset of the human population, the afterlife is a a way of avoiding having to do things in the here and now, hmm. to, to 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 face what otherwise would be a difficult thing for them to face, because they do have these moral sentiments, but they're also lazy
0: aren't we all i mean me more than others
1: yeah which i mean which is why we, i mean and you can point to people in philosophy who take this idea seriously and it imparts upon them strong moral sentiments i mean peter singer is like the poster child for that
0: yeah i would not want to be walking around with his moral sentiments well i mean yeah it looks very it looks very difficult
1: yeah but but this all assumes that moral sentiments is what grounds our morality which i i think is, is the more the more the, the longer I the longer I study ethics the more I think that that's probably the case that is not that moral sentiments are are, are what, what ultimately ground our, our ethics
0: as opposed to moral reasoning
1: well as opposed to uh, some kind of deontological duty or some kind of you know happiness principle or something like that that it's 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 more complicated than that we have these moral sentiments that are partly genetic, partly cultural, partly – which is why it becomes important. We're going off on a whole different
0: podcast. I'm afraid, I'm afraid yeah, we might have lost the ball a little bit here. Yeah, yeah
1: we're rabbit holing.
0: Although I enjoy it with you. We need to get back to the – So anyway,
1: that's basically the book. I think it's worth read if you are in any way interested in contemporary philosophy of religion because it's a good introduction to the basic arguments. And it's also a good read if you're interested in dealing with liberal Christian arguments for the existence of God.
0: Yeah, I think it, it performs a couple of functions. It's it shows how um, you can bring philosophical sophistication to the the modern debate, uh, the the new atheists, and say you know here's here's a different point of view on it. But it also is is an introduction to a middle ground that I, I find relatively rare in our discourse. Now, part of that's because we're where we live. Uh, we're not going to interact with, with liberal Christianity as much here in Oklahoma. But it, it really does – it provides a perspective which which I consider fascinating and invaluable and, and possibly the, the best hope for salvation of our society, if I can just exaggerate a little bit, because I don't think most people are going to make the jump suddenly from – uh, fundamentalism to secular humanism. <laughs> I think they need at least one rest stop along the way there. Do you think, though, that, like, this is
1: interesting for me, because I never went through the liberal Christian phase. I went straight from evangelical Christian who was very devout and practicing to evangelical Christian who was less devout and not very practicing to atheism.
0: Hmm. I'm not sure if that's characteristic of, I mean, I think a lot of people... We'll shed the beliefs one at a time, starting with some of the most onerous beliefs, such as hell and God hates fags, and then eventually getting around to these core beliefs like God exists.
1: See, I I, I didn't – I don't think there was any point at which I would have claimed to believe in the existence of God, where I wouldn't have also claimed to believe in the existence of hell. I never shed the hell thing before I shed the – which is before I shed the God thing.
0: Well, this is an empirical question, and we shouldn't just, you know, assume that our experience is a representative. Yeah. But, but I've met a lot of people for whom it was a very gradual process.
1: Yeah. I, yeah, I have too. I'm, am not, not, I'm not representative. I'm sure most people don't come at it by reading Christian apologetics books and realize they're full of shit.
0: <laughs> it's funny how similar our experience is in that respect, because you know, my my experience was trying to be a Christian apologist, trying to make those arguments. And it was you know, right after they invented the Internet, and I was, so I had the chance to actually make those arguments to people like Ted Drange and Richard Carrier and Nick Tattersall and get you know, personally spanked by philosophical thinkers, which is great. I never
1: went through that process. It was more along the lines of being exposed to ID proponents and William Lane Craig and Plantico to go by way of Lee Strobel and realizing just how bad those arguments really were.
0: If I could say a word in defense of Lee Strobel, at least he brings most of the best contemporary literature onto the table. He paraphrases it.
1: For, for, for the evangelical point of view, yeah.
0: Right, right. I mean he, yeah. he does a good job at collecting the scholars in defense of that view. And now he, he does a terrible job of, of getting a sense of what the best arguments are on the other side. Right. Because he assumes that he, his arguments are good enough.
1: Well, and he completely caricatures the other side. And it, It's rather obvious. No, why would anybody argue that? I would, if I were in their position, I would argue this. Oh, they are arguing that. Oh, well, now I have to reexamine my position.
0: Okay, we need to, we need to um, close up the show Okay. before we grab it whole again, but uh, I would like to encourage people to read this book uh, by Eric Ritan. In fact, I don't, I'm not sure if I've ever made a plug for a Christian theologian on the show before.
1: You've done it uh, when you interviewed Rightan.
0: Well, yeah, right. Okay, that doesn't count. It's the same, it's the same topic. Yeah, I, I would like uh, Christians and atheists alike to read this book. It has ideas that need to be encountered and thought about seriously. I agree. So, and I'm not just saying that because you know he's an Oklahoma author and, and a relatively nice guy in person. He is. <laughs> he's a pretty nice guy. I'd hang out with him.
1: Yeah, I I'm, I feel bad for when he hears this episode, but
0: I dare you to invite him to uh, speak at the discourses. M- yeah,
1: maybe. <laughs> I'm afraid I would get. I'm afraid I would get run out of town with pitchforks and, and torches. But all
0: right, I think I think that about does it for tonight. I appreciate your uh, reading the book and uh, giving us your thoughts on it. I appreciate you learning it to me on Kindle. No problem, man. Anytime.
2: The Oklahoma Atheist Godcast is produced by the Oklahoma Atheists. The mission of the Oklahoma Atheists is to develop a community of individuals and families who value and promote critical thinking, free thought, reason, and a scientific worldview, and who seek to have a positive effect on the community at large through fellowship, rational discussion, community service, and education. For more information, please visit our website at www. OklahomaAtheist.com The music for today's show is from the song God is Dead by Jaron Lake and is reproduced here under a Creative Commons license. Jared's music in the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast are hosted courtesy of the Internet Archive's community audio collection available at www.archive.org